Well, sometimes I am forced to get ready really quickly. Just kind of get everything together as fast as I possibly can and run out the door. It can be a little stressful, but you know, I make it in time. But I can remember a very different time of preparation when I had to get ready, and that was for my wedding day. I have never taken so much time in my life to get, I mean, the, the dress alone, usually I'd, I am one of those women who just kind of pull something out of the closet, let's go, you know? And I just remember all these different stores, then comparing, oh no, I like two or three, which one's the best one? And then you go on to the hair, is it up, is it down, is it half up, is it curled? I mean, how many bobby pins are gonna fit in this thing? You know, the whole thing, right? And then you've got, do I tan to get rid of my tan lines? I've never tanned in my life. Do I do this? That's a thing, I don't know. Um, then I remember that morning of, right? So this is all like many days ahead of time. But then I remember the morning of, I've never shaved my legs so precisely. I mean, every hair on my knee, it was like I had a magnifying glass out. Did I get every single hair? You know, it's just, it's the craziest thing to see how much effort how much work, how much days and days and days of preparation for this one day. Well, imagine that you have been invited to a banquet, something that you need to be beautiful and prepared for. You need to have a dress. You need to have your hair done. You need to make sure you um, have everything picked out, everything planned ahead of time. And it's going to take some, some work. But what happens, what would happen if you hit that day, and five o'clock rolls around and you're not ready. Oh no, you're caught off guard. You haven't been getting prepared. It's too late now, you're behind. You, you can't get the work that you need to get done, done in order to be ready for this banquet. Well, we have been invited to a banquet, so to speak. God has a seat for us at his table someday in heaven. Jesus has prepared a spot He's picked out our spot. He's put our name tag on the table. And we need to make sure that when we sit before God, that we are prepared, that we have taken this lifetime to get ready for that one moment and that we're not caught off guard, we're not unprepared, we haven't waited around, but that we've made the changes and the work has been put into our life so that we are ready for that moment. And really, that's what our text is going to look at today. Paul, as he's writing to the Colossians, he's going to turn and turn from really this hymn of praise that we looked at last week about who Jesus is, the creator, the sustainer, the one that we can trust, the one that we can follow. And he's going to turn and really look at them. And now he's going to say, Colossian Christians, who are you? We know who Jesus is, but who are you? And beyond that, because of who you are, what do you need to do about that? So we're going to see that we need to make sure that what's true of our position before God, our status before God, is also true in our day-to-day -day reality. So let's look at our text to see what Paul says to the Colossians and to us this morning about living the way our status really is before God and finding out what that status is so that we can live consistently with who we are. So Colossians 1, verses 21 through 23, follow along with me as I read, it says this. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy 
and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, which you have been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Well, this answers a big question for us. Who am I? Who am I and how am I to live in light of the answer of that question? So Paul jumps right in and he turns it to the Colossians. He says, you, you once were this, but now you are this. So let's write that down for point number one. You and I, we need to see our new identity in Christ and we need to praise him for it so we can praise God for our new identity. You and I, we need to praise God for our new identity. Now, it really helps for us to figure out what our old identity is, right? If we have this new identity that Paul talks about, he does first start off by saying what our old identity looked like. And he says it by introducing it with a term once. You once were like this, Colossians, before the work of God in your life. So let's look at those things. The once, he says, that we once were alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. So let's break those down a little bit. Alienated means that each one of us used to be a stranger or a foreigner to God. We were at one time a foreigner, a stranger, separated from God, no means of a relationship with him. And it even says this in Ephesians 2.12. It kind of brings in those three concepts. It says this, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. At one point before our new identity, we were strangers and separated from God. It also says we were hostile in mind, hostile in mind. That's the basic mindset of all unbelievers. Really, it means that we were on opposing teams to God. We were rivals, so to speak. Or even a stronger word is that we were at one point enemies of God, enemies of God. Romans 5.10 says it this way. While we were enemies, that's what, we w- that's what we were. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So at one point, we were enemies to God. And the third thing that Paul brings up of the old identity was that we were doing evil deeds. That hostile mind, that hostile mind that loved sin resulted in evil deeds, evil works sinful actions. And really, the sin is the thing that separates us from God, is it not? The fact that we are sinners and that we love our sin, that we engage in this sin, that we pursue this sin and participate in it, that's really the thing that separates us from that relationship with God because we know God is holy and he can't be around sin. Romans 3.23 says this, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us at one point, we all were sinners. And Isaiah 59, 2 says this way, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. I mean, if the text stopped here, 
What a bleak picture that would be, right? If we read those things and understood what they meant about our old identity, that would really be a difficult thing to swallow, a difficult thing to accept. But look at the next section of our verse. I love this. Paul does not stop there because we have a new identity, and he says it this way. He has now reconciled. He has now reconciled you. So even though you once were that way, every one of us was, we weren't born a Christian. We were an enemy to God. We were separated from him because of our sin. He says, now though, you are reconciled. So what does that term reconciled mean? Well, reconciled means to restore a broken relationship. One that has been broken part, one that's separated, as we would say, to come back together. Or, as we're thinking about the fact that we were an enemy to God, reconciliation means that God makes us a friend now. We move from an enemy opposing God to God's friend. This is full reconciliation, might I say. It's not like the type of reconciliation I see sometimes in my home or even, unfortunately, in my friendships at times amongst adults. Maybe you've seen a bad picture of reconciliation. Reconciliation, sometimes, you know, we've got one party, one brother, maybe, let's just say, who's offended another sister. I won't put names on it, but I do have four kids. And let's say there's an offense. You've seen this happen. And as a mother, of course, I'm helping them to uh, deal with the sin we point it out, we have to you know, confess it to our sister, and we have to ask for forgiveness, and the offended party then has to say, I forgive you, and then that's where we need reconciliation. And this is where we see it all break down, right? Because even though they might have said the words, we can see by their attitudes and actions that re reconciliation hasn't happened. I don't wanna be his friend anymore. We are not friends. He cannot play with me. I do not like him right now. I mean, right, we see this picture where even though some of the words have been said, possibly, the relationship has appeared to be restored, it's not. That sin is brought up, right? There's no, there's no relationship being there. We won't, we won't come together anymore. We want the separation still. That's a bad picture. Jesus brings us full reconciliation to God from an enemy completely to a friend of God, a reconciled sinner, well, how did he do this? How did he win us this reconciliation and give us a new identity to change us from that old one to a new one? Well, the text says that he reconciled us in his body of flesh through his death, through his death. And you know what? Paul really accentuates that he had a body. He had a body of flesh. He even kind of says it twice. And when you remember the context of our letter, the Christians in Colossae, they had been hearing from other people stepping into the church, teaching different things. And one of the things, one of the untruths that they were hearing was that Jesus wasn't really human. He didn't have a full human body. And so Paul kind of accentuates that point that no, Jesus was fully human when he came to earth. This body of flesh is what he gave to win us our reconciliation. He's the one that did the work. There's nothing that you or I did. We didn't become good enough all of a sudden. We didn't appease God in our own way somehow. Rather, it's through Jesus' sacrifice 
to the cross where he gave his own body to win us this reconciliation. Because we know that sin has to be dealt with in order for us to be fully reconciled to God. God cannot be around sin, which is why we're separated from him. And so in order for us to have this reconciliation, someone needed to pay the penalty of sin. And I think about it this way. I think a courtroom is so helpful in thinking through this. I picture myself standing in God's courtroom, and I am a condemned sinner. My sheet full of sin is you know, unraveling and rolling out the door, unfortunately, but that's the truth of it. From all the thoughts and deeds and actions I've done throughout my whole life, and I am rightfully condemned, I'm rightfully separated. And if I had to pay this penalty myself, I would have to bear the full weight of God's wrath. And yet, Jesus comes in, right? Jesus with his white sheet, pure clean, not a single sin on there. And not only that, but righteousness, righteous deeds, perfection. And he steps in and says, no, not this sinner. This sinner will not have to pay for her own sins, her own iniquities, but instead I will step in and take her place. What an amazing picture of full reconciliation. What an amazing picture that Jesus would step in and pay that price so that we can be made right with God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, for our sake, for you, for me, he made him, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are transferred from a sinner to righteous in God's eyes because of Jesus' sacrifice. Now, if that doesn't make you want to do a happy dance, I don't know what will. Okay, I'm known for happy dances in my family. But think about this beautiful truth. Even though we were totally separated from God, Jesus stepped in and made a way for us to be right with God. That is something that we should praise him for. Before we get on our phone in the morning and see what's happening in the world or what the newest update is on this app or that, we need to make sure we worship him for this. Maybe you've heard this for so many years and it's gotten a little bit old or something I, you know, I've heard that, I know that, that truth. I think Paul wants to encourage the Colossians to really worship and praise God for this reconciliation because look, if we were left in that old identity, that would be a lonely, sad, hopeless place. And yet God gives us a new identity in Christ. So not only should we praise and worship and thank him, that should be on our mind, our hearts, our lips. We need to make sure we're telling others about that too. One way we can worship and praise God is to just encourage even the body of believers with this truth and tell others who don't know this truth about our full reconciliation that's offered to any separated person from God. It's offered to all of us. Well, I think if we recognize this new identity in Christ, another way that we're going to worship him is by a consistent life that matches our new identity. And so let's write that down for point number two as we see where Paul takes the text next. You and I, we need to make sure we live consistently with our new identity. That's point number two. Live consistently 
with your new identity. If we really recognize this new identity, it's going to change the things that we do in our day-to-day -day life, in our day-to-day -day choices, our actions, the way we deal with sin. It's going to reflect this new identity. What does this new identity look like? Well, Paul goes on in our text and he says this. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And then he says, and, and or sorry, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The old yucky sins are gone. We no longer turn to that old identity. And in place of those things, we are to live holy, blameless, and above reproach life. Well, let's look and see what that looks like in reality of our day-to-day -day life. Before I even dive in, though, to these three terms, I do realize that this is a high bar. Even just hearing those words, I was reading and studying, I think, wow, God, you want me to be holy and blameless and above reproach? That's how I'm supposed to live in this new identity? But maybe we can picture it this way. Picture giving a piano player, a proficient piano player, a simple piece of music. If you know anything about music at all, you know there's measures, you know you've got to work at it, you know you've got to break it down, right hand, left hand, all of that. Picture giving this proficient piano player a very simple piece of music and say, this is what you need to work on. I mean, done, right? I've got it. I've got it in one day. I've got it in one take. I, I, I've mastered this. Or we can think about giving that same piano player a masterpiece, right? Something that is so many pages long that's going to take them days, months, years even to master. They're going to have to come faithfully to that piano, break it down chunk by chunk, and make progress consistently through it. It's going to take them a lifetime, really, to accomplish that masterpiece. Well, God is not just giving us uh, some simple thing to accomplish. God is giving us something worthwhile, a masterpiece to work on, so to speak, something that we need to come back to day in, day out, diligent and faithful, consistently, measure by measure. We need to make progress in this. Yes, it's a high bar, but it's a worthwhile pursuit for our lives to continuously progress forward in this masterpiece, these, these three things that he has presented before us for us to live in, for us to grow in each day. And, and maybe, you know, we could say, oh, if I look back over a week or a month, I don't see a ton of progress. But you're going to see throughout your lifetime that God is growing you to become more and more holy and blameless and above reproach. And that needs to be our goal. So let's look at this first word, holy. Holy is a word that often describes God. We even sang it this morning. Holy means to be set apart, to be pure. We see this as a description of who God is. But in, in terms of our day-to-day -day life, we need to start with a commitment to being in God's word knowing the things that God says are holy. How can we live a holy life if we don't know what our God requires of us? And yet he's put it all in this book, right? This book that we can study, that we can see his rules, his desires for us, his goals for us. They're all right there. So we need to get 
into that word to see our path of holiness and how we're to walk in that way. And as we dive into scripture, we need to also make sure that we allow it to convict us. I think that's the second way we can live holy lives, is we can allow the word of God to bring conviction to our life. It might be tempting, as it is for me at times, to excuse some of the sins we see, right? When God brings that conviction, I know that I often bring the three Ps up in my mind, and I know there's more, but I think it's either a personality excuse, a PMS excuse, or a people excuse, right? And I know that there's more excuses, but when God brings that conviction in my life, sometimes I can say, you know what, God, that's really just my personality. I remember my mom has told me some cute stories. I was always bossy as a kid, you know, I'm going to be bossy. I don't really need to work on that. You know, maybe I boss my husband around quite a bit, but you know what? That's my personality. Or maybe PMS, we all know about that, right? The third one, people. You know, really, it's because of this situation. It's really because of the way she interacted. If he had not, or if I wasn't in that position because of her decision, I wouldn't have responded that way. It's, it's so easy to shift the blame to somebody else. But when we're seeking to live holy lives, like God, set apart, pure, perfect. Really, we need to aim to see those convictions and allow it to do the work in our hearts to make a change, to not shift it away to somebody else and their problems. So what holy things do you need to include in your life? Do you need to be holy by serving or giving? Does your time usage need to be more holy Do your words need to be holy? What areas of life, the way you talk about others, the way you are with your kids, the way you are at your work, I mean, what areas of life do we need to grow in this holiness? Because that really needs to be our goal. The second thing that Paul says is that we need to be blameless, blameless. The second part of our masterpiece, so to speak. This this term means without blemish or defect without blemish or defect. And I want to hone in on one element of this blamelessness by looking at a verse in Job 1.1. It's a very short and simple verse that we're going to kind of expand a little bit. But Job 1.1, in speaking about who Job is, it says that Job was blameless. He feared God and turned away from evil. If we're to live more blameless lives, we need to make sure we are turning away from evil. When you see evil, when you interact with evil, when evil is presented before you, do you turn away? I mean, it's kind of the picture of when something comes on the screen that I don't want to see and I'm immediately, you know, covering my eyes. Oh, I shouldn't see that. Is that your response? Because this world is getting more and more evil. I mean, the, the images, the, the concepts, the podcasts, the news, that evil is all around us. We need to make sure that we're turning away from it. We're not keeping our eyes on it. I, I think this could really get to some of the things we use our time on or do our hobbies or what we choose to watch. We just need to make sure it, keeping a blameless life in this pursuit of holiness, that we are still turning away from evil and not engaging in those things. Especially the things that really kind of 
dominated us in our old identity, right? Going back to point number one, thinking about who we were, those sins that we really participated in in our old identity before we were reconciled, we need to make sure that we stay far from those things. But another way we can turn away from evil is by having a godly grief in response to our sin, a godly grief. And I love this passage found in 2 Corinthians 7.10, 2 Corinthians 7.10 really kind of unpacks what this godly grief looks like, and it even compares it to a worldly grief. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you? but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Okay, when, when we think of the two different approaches to when we see our sin, I can think about before I was a Christian that I had worldly grief. I would do the wrong thing and I would feel a sense of guilt. <sighs> probably shouldn't do that. That's probably not good. I know I'm not supposed to do that. But it would not cause a change in my life. I might have those feelings, but it wouldn't cause a change. Whereas we see a new identity, a new creation in Christ means that we have a godly grief about our sin. There is a desire and an action that causes us to repent and fully turn from that thing. This text says this leads to salvation without regret. We, we have this eagerness to clear ourselves. I love how it puts it. I mean, I want to be fully rid of this. I want to get this off my name. I want to get this off of, of the things that I normally do. We have this zeal, our passage says, this passion to see it get out of our lives. We even have this indignation, this hatred over a sin, not just a, a feeling of guilt, but a real hatred for that sin, knowing that it's offensive to God. When you see sin in your life, is this the way you respond to it? With that passionate hatred, that desire to repent and really turn from it and turn to God because that really requires diligence, effort. I can remember times of memorizing scripture upon scripture, of having that accountability, of journaling, praying, typing out my prayers. God, get rid of this sin. I want to pursue this so much. I want it out of my life because I desire to be blameless. I desire to be holy, and that's what you've called me to. Well, he also says we need to be above reproach. Above reproach is free from accusation or faultless. And when I think of this, I think of living a dual life. Really not living a dual life is the concept. Not being one person at church or at Bible study and then another person at home or in the workplace or with our family or in our neighborhood. There needs to be a consistency to be above reproach that we are the same in every context of our life. And so I think in order for us to maintain that above reproach lifestyle, one great application is for us to be here, to be here, to keep being here. I mean, I know we're getting into fall, and I know sickness is coming. I know there are times, you know, it gets busy. The schedule for us is full, and yet 
This is the place where we see that fellowship, that community, that encouragement for us to maintain our pursuit of holiness, to maintain our desire for godliness. This will help us to be above reproach. And really, remember, these three things are a masterpiece that God has presented, a worthwhile piece of music for us to work on for our whole lives. It's going to take commitment, practice, day in and day out, all the way till the end. And that's really where Paul ends with his writing to the Colossians and for us. So let's look where Paul turns as he says that the Colossian Christians, as they are living this way, because of who they are, he encourages them, yea, he even warns them to continue and to press on. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 says this. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. For you and for me, we need to make sure that we stand firm in this new identity and not stray or waver from it. And so let's write that down for point number three. We need to stand firm firm in our new identity. Stand firm. Continue on. Paul wants the Colossians to know what the proof of this new identity is. The proof of this new identity is if they continue in the faith, if they remain stable and steadfast. They don't shift or waver away. And it really provides as a warning to them, a warning for them to see that this needs to be something that continues on for the rest of their life and they cannot step off the path or waver or turn a different way. They need to stand firm all the way till the end. Now, I don't want us to forget point number one, which says that God is the one who reconciled us. I'm not referring to a workspace salvation God is the one through Jesus who won us our new identity. But Paul really does show us that a Christian, a real Christian, is going to continue in the faith. They will continue all the way till the end. Part of proving your new identity is persevering till the end. As one commentary put it, continuance is the test of reality. Continuance is the test of reality. One who is rooted in Christ will continue to remain steadfast to the hope of the gospel all the way till the end. And I think Paul included this because it was a great concern to him. If you remember the context of our letter, the Christians in Colossae, they were faced with people coming in and teaching other truths. There was one young, charismatic leader who was saying, you know, we can combine a little of this, a little of the gospel, a little of pagan worship. Let's put it all together, and this is really what you need to believe. And Paul is saying, do not get distracted by those new truths. Do not get distracted by a different gospel as if there was one. There isn't. He is saying we need to stand firm to the hope of the gospel presented here, this new identity that we have, this reconciliation. So we need to see that as well. We need to see what it means 
as he says to be stable and steadfast. Do you see how we have another set of three? I love it. We've got three, three, and three, just to keep it nicely packaged. Paul says we need to be stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. What does stable and steadfast mean? We need to be established and firm. Established and firm. It makes me think about a home and the foundation of a home. And really, these words do bring up that concept, even in the original language. Now, I'm a contractor's daughter, and so I remember many times going and seeing the start of a home and hearing and understanding the importance and all the work of laying that foundation, the rebar, the leveling, the concrete, all of that, just to build the house upon a solid foundation. Maybe that makes you think as well of something that Jesus said. It brings up what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Let's look at that, talking about this strong foundation. He says this in Matthew 7, verse 24 and following. Jesus says, Every the, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall. Who, how many of you are singing the song in your head right now? You got a bill, okay, there you go. There's updated ones too, but I mean, I can't help but, but sing this. But uh, it says it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock, that firm foundation that we're talking about, that stable, steadfast foundation. And everyone who hears these words of mine, he says, and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of the house. Jesus is telling his followers, he's telling us that we need to have this foundation, and part of the foundation that will help us to not shift away and to be stable is what he says at the very beginning of this text. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like this man building his house on a foundation. We need to hear Jesus' words to us, which means we need to be in them. We can't ignore them. We can't make it a added part of our day, of our week. This needs to be something that we dive into hearing his words, but not also hearing, but really the focus is on doing, implementing, making it part of our daily life. If you read something and you see that, ooh, I need to implement this, it's, we're going to God and saying, help us. Help us to figure out how I need to do this more, God. Help, help me to make these adjustments this week. Because everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who has that foundation, stable and steadfast. But I also think about the picture of the winds blowing and all the, the destruction coming up against the house. That makes me think about, too, our life and the trials and difficulties that will come. Those things can get, cause us or tempt us to shift away from what we believe as well, right? When things are going well, maybe it's easier to remain stable and steadfast and obey the words of God. But when things come that are blowing against us, something that surprises us, some health trial, some financial trial, some difficulty in a relationship, I mean, that can really cause us to get our eyes off of the truth of Scripture, to pull back or to waver. And so 
we need to make sure that even in the difficulty times, in the difficult times, that we remain faithful, rooted in what God's word says. Well, the passage also says that we don't need to shift away from the hope of the gospel. It's another concept of remaining true, continuing on, and persevering. But it also would have brought up the earthquakes that the people in in the Colossae area had really experienced. There was a giant earthquake, and the cities all around there were basically decimated. They were taken down. You know, Paul is saying to us, we need to make sure that the grounds are not shifting beneath us. There are new truths that are being presented to us. Our world is more and more not on board with what the Bible says. We need to make sure that that doesn't shift us or waver us or cause us to step off this foundation which is built on Christ. We need to make sure that even when we hear or read something that seems to not be in line with God's word, that we remain faithful to it, that we get some help understanding some of the theology, or we ask someone, hey, I heard this. What does the Bible say about this? Or better yet, that we go into God's word and seek it out, because that will always strengthen our faith even more and allow us not to waver from the hope of the gospel. He wanted the Colossians to remain faithful and to continue till the end, and he wants us to do that as well. What joy that brings, right? If we remain faithful, we can see the proof that we have this new identity. We don't have to doubt or wonder. When we see a life of continued faithfulness that goes all the way till the end remains faithful to God, we can see the proof of our new identity, the reconciling work that God has done in our life. Well, because of Christ's death, we've been given this new position. We have that old identity before Christ that we need to be so thankful that God has done the work in our lives to give us this new identity, to win us this right relationship with him. Our status is now a righteous follower of Christ. Our lifelong masterpiece is that we would continue in this commitment to follow him all the way till the end. And it makes me think about this hymn that has been playing in my mind. I grew up in a church where we, re- we sang from the hymnal, and this old hymn keeps coming to mind in regards to this passage and how we are to live in a way that matches our new identity. It's called Living for Jesus. Let me read it to you as we end. Living for Jesus, a life that is true, striving to please him in all that I do, Yielding allegiance, glad-hearted and free, this is the pathway of blessing for me. O Jesus, Lord and Savior, I give myself to thee. For thou in thy atonement didst give thyself for me. I own no other master, my heart shall be your home. My life I give, henceforth to live, O Christ, for thee alone. May that be our prayer.
Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this passage specifically. God, what a joyful truth it is that even though we were enemies to you, we were separated, we were without hope, God, you, you saw fit to send your son Jesus to win us and earn us our reconciliation, that right relationship. God, we thank you that you transferred us from an enemy to a friend. God, I pray that we would live in a way that matches our new identity. God, that the old things, the old sins that we once pursued would no longer be part of our life. Help us, God. We know you've given us the Holy Spirit to do this work, and yet you call us as well, God, to pursue this in a lifelong pursuit all the way to the end. God, we ask that you would give us the strength to do this. We thank you for this community that helps support us in doing this well. And God, we want to give you all the glory as we seek to live holy, blameless, above reproach lives. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, thank you. You are dismissed to your groups.